Hi, I'm Thomas Kopachi. You may remember me from my appearances on Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. And you're listening to Trek Untold. And welcome back to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I am your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. And welcome back to the podcast, and more importantly, welcome to the kickoff of Season 3, because this is Episode 101. Not to be confused with that TNG episode that had the binars in it, that's a whole different thing. We're still quite a few digits away from that number. But anyway, if you like obscure references like that, you're going to be in for a treat on this season. My focus during my time away has been not just improving some elements of this show that I wanted to adjust, but also hunting down some truly elusive guests. When I say I have some deep cuts coming to the show, I really mean it. This season, I've made it my mission to find contributors of the Star Trek universe who haven't done a lot of interviews and whose stories are truly untold. And I have to tell you guys, I was able to find some real gems, including some folks who have never talked about their Star Trek experiences and some who, quite honestly, haven't really done many interviews at all. This isn't just shining a spotlight on these well-deserving folks. This has been an excavation mission to uncover stories that no one has heard before with people from around the world. For real, you are going to be shocked to see some of the guests I have in the coming months, so you are not going to want to miss a single episode. Now, as for the kickoff to this season, well, I am very excited to tell you about our first guest. This actor is one of a short list of performers to appear in all four of the Berman-era Star Trek shows, as well as one of the movies. And that man is Thomas Kopachi. Thomas has appeared in TNG as a Romulan named Mirok in the episode The Next Phase, and as a train engineer in the episode Emergence, followed by a role as a comm officer aboard the Enterprise B in Star Trek Generations. After that, he headed to Voyager to play Viorza in the infamous episode The Thaw, and next did two appearances on DS9 as Kira Tabin, the father of Kira Norris. Finally, Thomas showed up twice on Enterprise, first in the pilot episode as a Vulcan in the opening of the show, Broken Bow, and then later on in the series in the episode Harbinger as the phasing sphere builder test subject. But Thomas's career goes far beyond that, with roles in L.A. Law, Roseanne, As the World Turns, The X-Files, Murder One, Bones, The Practice, and one of his most notable roles as Secretary of State Bob Slattery in The West Wing, which we're going to talk about today. Thomas has also spent a lot of time in the theater world, including a discussion on a show that just recently finished up here in New York City. Thomas is an actor's actor, but not just that, he is also a Trekkie, tried and true. You're going to be amazed at the insight he gives on so many of his roles today, and especially the love and respect he has had for his multiple roles on Star Trek. So get ready to enjoy a very special conversation with an amazing performer and a great human being, Thomas Kopachi. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. 
At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info, and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now join me on the other side of the screen. This gentleman is one of five actors to play seven characters in the Star Trek franchise. And even without those Star Trek credits, he is, I would think it's safe to say, a living legend in the industry. We are joined today by Mr. Thomas Capacci. Thomas, how are you? I'm fine. How are you, Matthew? Hello, everybody. <laughs> I'm doing good. Uh, it's very, very exciting to talk with you today because, yeah, man, your career is just all over the place. You've done some really tremendous, interesting things. And I'm excited to talk not just Trek, but everything else. Well, great. <laughs> So let's just jump on into things here, by the way. And I do want to mention to you, you just recently wrapped up a run uh, in Cole Country at uh, the Cherry Lane Theater, which was here in New York City. So I just want to ask you, how, how, how did that go for you? That was a wonderful experience and such a powerful story to tell. Uh, we had done it at the public theater pre-pandemic. And uh, we had just opened. I think we'd been running a couple of days after our opening night. And uh, they closed things down. And I remember our director saying, oh, this will only probably be a couple of weeks. Well, a couple of years go by and the Cherry Lane uh, got together with the public and decided to put it up. And uh, then we took it to West Virginia, to the community where the incident, uh, the uh, Upper Big Branch mining disaster actually happened. And that was an incredible experience, meeting the, the families and the people who went through that uh, so it was a great success. I wish it had been a happier sort of play, but it was an important play. And we may revive it again. I'm not sure, but uh, there's talk of that. Are there any plans, maybe not just a revival in New York, but doing more of a na nationwide tour? There has been talk of that. There's also been talk of taking it to Europe, but everything's still in the talking stage. So you know how that goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talk is cheap. Uh, so talk hopefully it gets out there. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> So, uh, you know, as I mentioned, we do have a lot of other things that I want to discuss besides Trek, but I am going to start this thing off with a Trek question. And that's, Thomas, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Did you watch the original series? Did you ever watch any other series? Were you a fan of the show? I became a devoted fan. Uh, I watched the original series and was immediately locked into it. And uh, I was so disappointed when it canceled three seasons, I believe, right? Is that, yep. that correct? But then uh, when TNG came on in 87, I got right on that. And uh, I just loved the show. I loved the idea. Uh, 
how do I describe it? Of uh, well, first of all, that earthlings are all of us, race, color, all of that. That we're all earthlings, and uh, meeting these other uh, cultures out in the uh, outer space. I-, I love that idea, and I love the acting, the writing. I always thought was superb. So when I went out to LA, I'd been living in New York for. So since the mid seventies and in the early nineties, I went out to LA and I said, if I don't do anything else, I have to get on Star Trek next generation. And uh, lo and behold, after a few auditions, I got to be Miroc. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to talk about him in a little bit, but I want to keep going a little bit deeper into your origin story, if you will. So Thomas, can you tell us where you were born, who your parents were and what little Thomas wanted to be when he grew up? Well, this is going to be a complicated story. It I, uh, I was born in Manchester, New Hampshire. My mother and biological father never married. My mother was married at the time. So my last name is the name of the man she was married to. I do not have my biological father's name. They, they split up while I was still an infant. So we lived in Manchester, New Hampshire for maybe a few months after I was born. Then my mother came to New York and then various parts of the East Coast. And we ended up in Southern California, where uh, at age four and a half years old, she met a man named Mr. Frederick, and they married. And for about 10 years, I was Tommy Frederick, but he never adopted me. So when they divorced, the name on my birth certificate was still Copachi, so I went back to Copachi. I, uh, as a young man, I remember 10, 11 years old because I never met my biological dad. He had been a bomber pilot in World War II. I wanted to be a, a fighter pilot. Uh-huh. And uh, in high school, I had to get glasses. And the first thing I did after I got my glasses was I called the Air Force recruiting officer and I said, could I be a pilot if I wear glasses? And he said, well, you can't be a fighter pilot, but you could maybe fly other things. And I remember this devastated feeling. And I thought, okay, well, that's not going to happen. I had been doing some acting classes uh, just for fun, but I never thought of myself as an actor. And uh, when I finished high school, I went into the Navy and uh, and spent three and a half years in the United States Navy. And then when I was discharged, I was living in San Diego. And because of the GI Bill, and thank goodness for the GI Bill, I uh, went to uh, a junior college got an associate arts degree. The first semester, I was going to be an uh, archaeologist. So I was taking classes in archaeology. And about halfway through the semester, I I thought, this is too much book work. (laughs) I can't do it. And I was doing a drama class on the side. And I talked with the drama professor. And he said, uh, well, you know, you could keep getting the GI Bill and just change your major to to theater arts. So I did that. And uh, when I finished uh, my associate arts degree, I went to San Diego State College, now San Diego State University, and got my BA there. And then I went to Cal Institute of the Arts, where I got my MFA. But it wasn't until my second year at Cal Arts that I thought I was really going to pursue professional acting. I was sort of just doing it because I didn't know what else to do. But uh, I met a professor who uh, was starting a theater company. And I ended up going to Europe for a couple of years. And uh, and then I knew this is what I was going to do. Hmm. 
but it was a sort of a circuitous route to, to really finally make the decision, okay, I'm going to be a professional actor. I lived in Europe for about a year and a half. We toured uh, Holland, Germany, Italy, uh, doing original theater, avant-garde theater, which was very popular at the time. And then I came to New York, uh, worked at La Mama for about a, a year or two years. And uh, well, then started doing soap operas and uh, whatever kind of work came my way. <laughs> yeah, that was quite a journey to get into it. Yeah. And, yeah, it's curious. I didn't mean to go so on so long. but oh, Not uh, at all. Not at all. And you know, it's interesting because a lot of times you know, when I do these interviews, I'll ask folks when they discovered performing. But for you, it was kind of a part of your life. Uh, and then just eventually became a whole of your life. So uh, I guess my question in this case then would be, you know, you're doing it just kind of for fun, but when did you find you had an actual passion for it? And what was it that caused you to have this great drive to then want to pursue this as a living? Well, it's interesting. I was always a, the class clown uh, in school and I did it strictly for fun and also as a defense mechanism. We moved a lot and I found you could, if you could be funny, you could be safe because uh, there were a lot of bullies in the schools I went to. But uh, I think I discovered in college, I discovered I was really liking doing it, but I couldn't think of it as a profession. It just, it didn't compute with my head. When I went to uh, grad school and started working with this professor and then went to Europe, I discovered the real inner joy of performing. And uh, I guess so I was in my mid to late 20s. And I th said, yes, this is what I really want to do. I, I feel it in my heart. And I probably always did do, do that. But I had all these other things going on in my head. So uh, but I would say by by my mid to late 20s, I knew that's what I wanted to do. So you mentioned, you know, you're in New York and you're doing some things here and there. Uh, so I'd like to hear if you remember what your very first on screen professional gig was and what you learned from that experience. Let's see. That's a good question. I think it would have been soap operas. Okay. I was going to say commercials. I did a couple of commercials, but uh, commercial acting is a separate thing. I think my first real acting experience on camera was in a soap opera. I did a few soaps. I did As the World Turns, Loving, uh, One Life to Live, and then there was another one I did. Uh, and uh, it was fun. I had been doing a lot of theater and uh, now soaps, of course, are different from, uh, I guess you say, other types of on-camera. My first uh, regular television gig was on Spencer for Hire. Yeah, I was going to ask you a fact about that because, uh, you know, of course, throughout your career, there are plenty of Star Trek connections hiding among that. And Spencer for Hire uh, had Avery Brooks in the show as Hawk. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, I couldn't find the episode to watch for my research. But I'd love to hear if you can, you know, if you remember anything from that and if you had a chance to meet up or work I with Avery. I can't remember the title of the episode, and I did not know that it was Avery on the Brooks. night he was betrayed, 1987. Oh, oh, uh, 1987. Oh my gosh, uh, I was a crooked cop. Yep. <laughs> so you saw this? I, I found out that much. That's about as far as I could find any information about the episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a lot of fun. I was up in Boston, and uh, uh, I just remember really enjoying myself, and. Uh, I learned that, uh, well, there's this saying, less is more. You have to be careful with that. But I learned the power of stillness. And uh, I learned uh, patience. You can always do it again. Although when you're the guest actor, you don't want to do that too many times. <laughs> and uh, 
uh, just the uh, to trust myself. To in theater, you, one person described theater and film and TV as uh, a volume control. With theater, you want the volume up a little bit, and with film and TV, you just take it down a little bit. And that's that's a pretty good rule of thumb. So I was learning a lot of technique, camera technique, and uh, fortunately, uh, I gravitated to the character. I've always gravitated to bad guys for some reason. <laughs> Uh, so I think, yeah, basically some of the basic techniques of on camera, although soap operas helped me, helped me a lot, but, uh, yeah, I learned, uh, stillness is powerful. Yeah. We've heard that in a lot of these interviews where, you know, if you come from the theater world and you transition into TV, like you said, you're used to going real big and it's very much about making things a little bit smaller because, uh, you know, I just spoke with someone recently and, uh, folks will hear this interview soon as well, uh, where you talk about being on a movie screen and basically you're going to be 20 feet tall. So you don't have to be yeah enormous. You can just be this, but still convey the exact same thing. Exactly. And keeping, keeping all of the impulses. So it's not like you're crunching yourself in. It's just that you don't have to blow it up so big, hmm. but uh, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's pretty accurate. Yeah. And, you know, since we are talking about Star Trek connections here, one more I do want to bring up uh, will be that you did two episodes of Boston Legal. And you got to work with Captain Kirk himself, William Shatner, uh, as well as Rene Arbergenois, who you didn't really necessarily act directly with, but he was in the scene with you or one of the scenes with you. Yes, uh, he so, was. And that was on your Wonderful. second Boston Legal episode. So, yeah, I'd love to hear any stories you have from that set and working with both these gentlemen. Well, it, uh, Rene, well, he was a wonderful, wonderful actor, it goes without saying. But my favorite memory of William Shatner at that time was I was sitting in the makeup chair. I was playing the judge and they were getting me all prepped up. And he came up and tapped my shoulder and he said, it's good to be working with you. And uh, that's my fondest memory of William Shatner. Because <laughs> I didn't get to work with him. I Very briefly on Generations I did. But uh, I always thought he was a fine gentleman and a marvelous actor and a great sense of humor. Just a, just a funny guy. He and James Spader would uh, cut up uh, in between takes. And uh, uh, they were a good duo, by the way, I thought. And uh, but that's my fondest memory of William Shatner and acting opposite him, of course, was a huge thrill. <laughs> yeah, I was able to watch that episode as well. And that looked like it was a fun time because <laughs> I feel yeah. like, you know, it, I wasn't really a fan of Boston Legal or I guess I just wasn't watching it when it first aired. But having watched it now, I mean, it felt like that was the real William Shatner, more so than what we ever saw in the Star Trek. This was real William Shatner on screen. I think there's some truth to that. Yeah, I, I I hadn't thought about that before, but yes, I agree with you. And, you know, it's interesting because I was looking through your resume and I couldn't watch all 130 something things that you were in. But uh, I, I did happen to know that, you know, so much of your career, you were pretty much in a legal setting and especially you were a judge a lot of times. So, you know, Boston Legal, Ally McBeal, The Practice. Ally um, McBeal, that's the other show I was trying to remember. Yes. And The Practice. Yes. And there's <laughs> yeah, that's true. I wasn't always a bad guy. I... <laughs> <laughs> The yes. judges were fun because you have such power. And Messiah, I don't know if you got a chance to see Messiah. Uh, no, 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 that no. was uh, a mini series. Well, pre-pandemic again. And I was a judge in that. It's a fascinating mini series. If you get a chance to watch it, it's wonderful. Uh, so uh, the, the nice thing about a judge is you rule the roost. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that, that was a, quite enjoyable. Ally McBeal, what a fun show that was to work on. See, that one I did watch, which uh, I, I wasn't really a big fan of the, the legal practice shows, you know, like the Law and Orders, that kind of thing. But Ally McBeal, I watched because it felt a little bit more approachable to me. 
Yes, yes, it was. And uh, I'm, trying, I'm trying to remember. Uh, can you remind me who, who was actually in the episodes with you? Was that a time when uh, was it was that the Lucy Lou era, or is this pre Lucy Lou? Golly, I think it's pre Lucy Lou, okay, but so I'm not was, positive. Was Peter McNichol on the show? He was. He was a regular. Peter McNichol star, right? was on the show, okay. and I can't remember who the. Oh, my brain. I'm sorry, but Peter McNichol was on the show. Yes. Yeah, because he's one of my favorites. I think he's such a, a truly underappreciated actor. What a great performer. Uh, oh, great performer. Yes. Really, really good. Have you had a chance to work with him much through your career? I mean, I don't know if you had to do, do any scenes with him in Ally McBeal, but have you worked with him or been around him often? No, just as far as I can remember, just that show. Okay. Uh, and we didn't really interchange. That's true. We didn't act opposite each other, but he was on the set and we chatted a few times. He's a great guy. I wish and, he did Star Trek so I don't have an excuse to talk to him here. <laughs> <laughs> Does he live in New York? I can't remember if he's New York or LA. Yeah, I don't know, but I'm going to have to find that out. You know, he was in Ghostbusters too, so that counts as being his New Yorker, right? That would make him yes, <laughs> unofficially. Uh, you know, but I did find one other thing. You know, besides you being a judge so much, is you have been a DA. You've been in the court a lot in your roles, oh. and one of the ones I did want to mention was uh, Ghost of Mississippi with Alec Baldwin. That was a really, really wonderful project to work on. Yes, I testified and. Uh, Oh, Alec Baldwin and uh, Gene, was it Gene Hackman? Am I thinking of, yeah. Yeah, that was a wonderful show to work on. And uh, I uh, made a couple of friends, uh, Jordan Lund, who was uh, one of the deputies. And uh, I can't remember the other actor now. We haven't been in touch. But yeah, that was a, that was a real uh, good experience and an important film too. Proud to be part of it. And I do have to throw one other question your way about an unrelated sci-fi franchise, just because this one is for my mom, because she is a giant Richard Dean Anderson fan. And you did an episode of Stargate SG-1. Stargate SG-1 up in Canada. Yeah. I also yep. did a Babylon 5. You did, know. yes. Babylon yeah. 5, I hate to say this on the show because I have to say it so often, but I've never had a chance to sit through the entire series yet. So I'm, I'm horrible at that. But Stargate SG-1, I do know. Uh, so I'd love to hear if you have any stories about your time on that set. And especially... For the sake of my mom, who's probably listening, uh, if you have any stories about RDA, Richard Dean Anderson. He's a wonderful, well, he was just terrific to work with. And uh, I was, uh, I remembered I had auditioned for it and it seemed like many weeks went by and I hadn't heard anything. So I let it go. And then I got a call (laughs) and uh, flew up to Canada, met him. And I can't remember the co-star, but he was such a swell guy to work with and be around. And uh, I'm surprised that series didn't last longer. I think that had a lot of uh, good stuff going for it. But it was, uh, it was a terrific experience. And uh, another guy with a good sense of humor, too. Very, very funny guy. But uh, uh, I don't have any particular stories, just that it was an enjoyable experience. And uh, I, re- I really had a good time working on it. I kept hoping they'd bring me back, but they didn't. <laughs> Well, and I would be remiss to also not ask about your time on the West Wing, which is an amazing oh. show. And um, what a cast. I mean, just, just yeah. looking back on the ones that you did, I was just like starstruck by who was in that. Just some of the amazing character actors you got to work with in that show. Just amazing. And I was thinking of that when I was thinking before we did the, started the interview, the uh, two shows that I thought had the, the sustained good writing were Star Trek, Star Trek Next Generation, the spinoffs, and West Wing. Just each episode, the writing was outstanding. And uh, yeah, that was, and working with uh, John Spencer, bless his heart, he's passed on, of course, was a treat. He's such a kind man. And of course, uh, Martin Sheen, 
just a great guy. And then uh, just after the pandemic started, they did a sort of a get out vote revival of uh, of uh, West Wing. And I got yeah, to go yeah, to the 2020 reunion special. 2020 reunion special. Yes. And uh, that was a real treat. Just seeing all these people again was just so wonderful. Alice and Jenny and uh, just everybody. And everybody looked good. And uh, I thought it came off really well, too. I was wondering about that special, in fact, because, you know, again, that is many, many years after the series initially aired. So yes. when you come back on set with all these people, I mean, did it just feel like the puzzle pieces fell right back into place or did you have to kind of find yourselves again? I was nervous about it and it did just seem like everything fell into place. Wow. I was so surprised because I thought, well, gosh, I haven't seen so-and-so in years. and But everybody just came together. And because it was uh, advertised as a... Uh, filmed reading we were allowed to have our scripts with us to look at if we needed to it sort of loosened things up in a way that was really really nice and uh so yeah we did we just fell together and got back in it was like uh, we had just been working on it the day before and uh, these years hadn't gone by and the uh, martin sheen is just amazing he's an amazing another amazing guy that's fabulous yeah I and think- uh sterling k brown who did the uh the part that John Spencer had played was marvelous. Just terrific. Yeah. I think that's one of those TV shows that really elevated what television can be. And, I agree. You know, it feels like anytime you watch an episode of that show, it's just like a giant production. It feels like you're on a, a multi-million dollar set, not, not like a Star Trek set where it's all sorts of special effects, but the mood, the setting, the cinematography, the people who are performing in it, it just feels like it is this giant, beautiful ensemble production that's meant to be on the big screen. Yeah, I, that's, that's exactly right. And I think they, the creators of that show really emphasized that the first episode I did, I was welcomed like you're in our family. Welcome to our family. And I didn't know I'd be coming back at all. I just did the one, one episode. And, but that, that was every, uh, every time I was on it, that was my experience. And I think that goes to uh, Aaron Sorkin and all the one. In fact, after I did my scene in that first era, uh, episode, Aaron Sorkin came down onto the set and shook my hand and I, and thanked me. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. Cause other shows I had done, uh, everybody's gracious. You do your bit and then you leave. But, uh, it was really like, Hey, come you're in our family, you're in our family. And, uh, that, that maintained throughout the series, I believe. You know, to do a show like that and to be a recurring character, like you were to come back so often, I'm wondering if that changed the way that you look at politics in any way, or the way that you think about government in any particular way, did that have any effect on you? Well, it, it emphasized my, my leftist leanings and, uh, and it, uh, yeah, it got me thinking some of the episodes, uh, I got to appreciate what goes on in these conferences in the white house. And, uh, it's, it's serious stuff. Of course, that's, that's the only thing to say. Of course it's serious, but I got to appreciate the, uh, the inner workings now, of course, it's a TV drama, but they did their research and they were very accurate. And I, I really began to appreciate much more how the executive branch works. And, uh, but as far as my politics goes, uh, that, that stayed the same. <laughs> and I think it's sort of, it was in that ballpark anyway, uh, the show. Uh, I won't speak for everybody, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, to paraphrase Peter Falk, uh, just one last thing before we move on to Star Trek stuff here. Sure. And uh, there's one other show that you did that we talk about a lot on this show, and you'll be surprised, because uh, I love talking about Murder, She Wrote. 
And uh, you were in a two-parter from the final season, which was called Nan's Ghost. And that brought Jessica, you know, Angela Lansbury, her character Jessica, over to Ireland. Uh, and this trip, of course, manages to get her wrapped up into a giant murder mystery and also sort of a ghost story. It's, you know, for Star Trek fans, I would say this one's kind of like Sub Rosa without the sex candle ghost. Yes. Uh, and, and I don't know if Thomas even know that reference, but yeah, that's a pretty good way to, <laughs> to encapsulate that one. I'm but, trying uh, to remember. Uh, oh, I've lost the name of the lead actors. Uh, Angela Lansbury. Angela Lansbury. Thank you. My gosh, my brain. Our first entrance, I'm carrying the suitcases. I'm the butler, the yep. Irish butler. And uh, we're waiting to hear action. And she starts tap dancing outside the door. And I'm watching her. And she said, Isn't this fun? Isn't this just great fun? And I went, Yeah, you bet. <laughs> and then they said, Action. And we opened the door and we went in and entered. Uh, uh, that's my fondest memory of Angela Lansbury. She's just, she really loved doing what she was doing, what she, what she is doing. And uh, uh, yeah, that, that was a great treat to work on that show. And I thought it was well-written too for the kind of drama it was. And uh, the actors were all superb. Again, I've been very fortunate to work with just terrific actors I won't name any names of actors I didn't particularly like, but I, I think just about everything I've done, I've worked with superior talent. And I think one of the nice things about this particular episode we're talking about is that it also was a two-parter. So we really got to spend time with the characters and really get to know them. And everybody has a lot going on. And oh, uh, in particular, wow. your character, Leonard, I mean, <laughs> Leonard is uh, not really a spoiler, but anybody who watches the first act even will get this information. You know, Leonard, the, the main butler, he's a butler for this state, but he's also uh, a former convict. And he's also working for this other crooked cop to take photos of this couple. There's a lot going on here. It's a, it's a pretty neat role. I had so much fun with that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, who was the actor with uh, the cop that I, I, I he, we had a wonderful scene together. And uh, uh, yeah, it, it was a lot of stuff. I was not, uh, was not prepared because the initial script I read, there was much less that I did in the script, but then they added things on. And so I was very, very thrilled to have all, all this other stuff to do. Uh, it was a great show to work on. Murder, She Wrote is an interesting little thing, too, because in some ways it's realistic, but it's also a little bit campy, I feel like, at times. A little bit, yeah. yeah. And I think that's what she meant when she was doing, because I thought about that. I thought, it's a serious show, but there there's camp in there. And I think she was conveying that to us actors who were following behind her on our first entrance, that uh, don't be afraid to uh, have fun. <laughs> Yeah, it's an interesting thing. And I'm curious to hear uh, what your thoughts are on on this type of acting, because, you know, you're from, you know, we're talking about the West Wing a few minutes ago, and that's a very dramatic, very serious role. And then we yeah. jump into something like Murder, She Wrote, where it's a lot more campy, a lot more silly. There's Malcolm in the Middle that you did, which also is a little bit fun. Oh, uh, yeah. So I guess I'd like to ask, do you have a preference to the way you perform? Do you want to be serious, gritty, realistic, you know, cold country, hard boiled kind of acting? Or do you like kind of letting loose and doing more stuff like Murder, She Wrote, let's say? Well, uh, that's an interesting question. If, if I had my, no, I think I, I, I enjoy both equally. There's a certain freedom in being silly that I, I really enjoyed, but, uh, but I also, gosh, I'd have to say it's 50, 50 because this, the drama on West wing was, could be so compelling and, and fill you. Uh, but, uh, to do good comedy, 
I think good comedic actors are good dramatic actors. And I like to think I'm a pretty good comedic actor. And I had a discussion with a friend of mine who felt the same way. He said, you notice that uh, some of these comic actors that, uh, uh, that we think of as comedians, when we see them in drama, they just seem to be able to do it uh, uh, and have a depth to them. And it might be because uh, comedy and drama, the two masks are right side by side. But I'd say, uh, depending on the comedy, uh, I've been lucky in the ones I've done that uh, I thought they were pretty good quality. I, I would say it's, uh, I, I like them both equally. Well, I want to follow it up with uh, basically something we talked about much earlier in the interview when we were talking about your origins in acting. And you talked about finding the inner joy in performing. So, you know, we're talking about drama right now also. And, you know, you talked about just moments ago, the tension of doing drama and that kind of thing. So, you know, I'm trying to, I guess, figure out how you marry those two things. You, so you use the phrase inner joy. Now we're talking about high tension drama. Where does the joy come into to drama? How do you find, I guess, joy in that? Because that's, you know, if you're doing a role that is very dramatic and very serious, it's going to be the kind of thing that probably weighs a lot on your shoulders also. So what is mm-hmm. the inner joy from something like that? I think it's the creative spirit just saying, let's make this, let's make this. Uh, it has no judgment on serious or funny. It's just, I'm getting to, I'm getting to create something. And that's, that's the inner joy I'm talking about. It's not haha joy, just the, the fulfilling, the feeling that, that you're making something and, uh, and to make a character. There's a, uh, there's just a satisfaction and a, and a joy, a joy in, in creation. I, I don't know if that uh, answers your question. but I, uh, I think so. If that, to paraphrase, you can tell me if I'm getting this right or wrong. Uh, you know, for you, acting is the process. It's more about the process, not necessarily the end result. I would say yes, yes. And, uh, and the process varies. Uh, Malcolm in the Middle was about as silly as you can get and so opposite from what I did in West Wing. And yet the creative energy and the, uh, the joy of making it is the same for, for me, for me. Malcolm in the middle, what a, what a hoot that was. <laughs> I still have, I think of that hair piece I wore and uh, uh, given, given my hair, hairline. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I would say for me, it's just... I'm getting to make something. I'm I, the creative spirit is is opening up, and I'm getting to make something. And when you work with a good director who gives you room, not to, to violate the script, but to just explore variations of how to deliver your character, it's so satisfying. Com- com- comedy or drama. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. 
repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay what you want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Are you looking for the perfect fashion statement to show you're a geek and proud of it? Well, welcome to Geek Girls Castle, where I make fun and functional geeky clothing and accessories for every occasion. My name is Missy, and I started creating my own gear and apparel in 2015 to bring nerdy products to the geek girl population, which does include all LGBTQA+, non-binary, and POC and BIPOC folks. I couldn't find anything for us gals except t-shirts, so I decided to combine my passion for fashion with my fandoms, ranging from handmade skirts with really large pockets, travel accessories like toiletry bags, luggage tags, and zipper pouches. I also embroider nerdy items for home decor like wall hangings and hand towels, and products like keychains, bookmarks, and journal covers. Need something to carry all that in? Well, I make great bags to put all those accessories into or onto. Whether you like Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who, Marvel, DC, and everything else in between, there is something for every geek girl. My website is constantly updated with new styles and fandoms, no matter what time or dimension you come from. If you'd like to browse my products or ask for something custom, visit me at geekgirlscastle.com. That's geekgirlscastle.com. Have you ever watched a YouTube video and said you wish you could do what they were doing? Whether it's the filming, the production, the editing. Maybe you listen to your favorite podcast and you wondered how they put that show together, how they got that great sound quality, what gear they use, how much does it cost to get started? Or maybe you checked out a video or read a book about one of your favorite entrepreneurs and it made you say, I want to live that life. I want to do what they do. Then check out my podcast, Toys and Tech of the Trade. I'm Rich Butler, and I've been making podcasts for almost two decades, speaking with experts across all fields to get to the bottom of the hows and whys of their achievements. Each week, I sit down with these amazing people who have carved their own path in life and share the gadgets, the gear, and the tech that they rely on to create their content, the methods that they use to run their business, and the habits and trends that are part of their daily routine and their way of life. And all of that, of course, gets put together to make them successful. We pull back the curtain on the process to help you understand what these people do differently so that you can draw inspiration and get ideas and be inspired so that you can take action today. This podcast is inspiring, educational, it's enlightening, and most of all, it's a lot of fun. I want you to join me on this journey so that you can use the tools and advice shared in this podcast to level up your business or creative endeavors, giving you all the tips, tactics, and tools so that you can transform what you're doing from a side hustle into a full-time lifestyle where you can collect a paycheck for doing what you love. Check out Toys and Tech of the Trade wherever you listen to podcasts and check out the RageWorks Network at RageWorksNetwork.com. 
Network.com for more info on this podcast and all of the many other great shows that we have on the RageWorks Podcast Network. That's toys and tech of the trade with some assembly required. All right, well, Thomas, let's beam into our Star Trek discussion now, and we have a lot to talk about. So let's just start at the very beginning, which, as I've been told, is a very good place to start. So uh, your first Star Trek appearance was in Season 5 of The Next Generation in the episode titled The Next Phase, and that's where you played a Romulan scientist named Murak. So first thing, had you ever auditioned for Star Trek before, and do you remember what the casting process was like for this character? Casting process was... uh pretty similar to other casting process. You, you get your sides. Well, you got your sides in those days and you go over the material. And because I was such a fan of the show, I had a sense of the style and a sense of uh, how a Rom. Well, I had auditioned for a couple other characters. I had auditioned two or three times before I got Miroc. But when I got to audition for Miroc, I, I just thought of something Somebody had said to me, uh, no empathy. I always felt the difference between the Romulans and the Vulcans was that there was a certain empathy that a Vulcan had. And a Romulans, equally intelligent, brilliant uh, beings, but much colder. And uh, I would say ruthless, but it's not even ruthless. It's just that's mine. I want it. You're in my way. Get out of my way. I take it. No, no qualms. And uh, I thought about that when I was playing, when I did the audition. And uh, I think I read through it once. They asked me to do one part again because there was uh, something they wanted to hear me repeat, but I didn't change anything. And the next day I got called and I was Miroc. And I just want to throw you a quick compliment here because, you know, that was a very excellent observation about the Romulans versus the Vulcans. That, that's a very great way to look at that. Oh, good, good. I'm glad to hear that. I've been thinking about that for many years because I loved the show so much. And I thought, how, who's the brain that created these ideas, these, these beings? Uh, and uh, the writing on that show, again, just outstanding. Yeah. Yeah, I just find it fun that we just were waxing poetic about the process of, of of what drama is. And now we're talking about, you know, the unempathetic Romulans and how that all fits into acting. So that's just a little fun juxtaposition there to note. But Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> because they would just, or Miroc would justify himself. He wouldn't say, I'm a bad guy. He'd, he'd just say, this is how it is, folks. Uh, you know, and, uh, and, uh, Oh, I, got, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good here. Um, you know, I'd like to ask you, remember anything about the makeup process to become a Romulan? I mean, had you ever done any like crazy prosthetics like that before? That's a great question. I had not. And uh, when I was in college, we did uh, the makeup artist, the makeup department asked if some actors would come in to do life casting. So that was my first experience with it. And that I discovered that I was very patient with it. Some actors because you, you sat in that for oh, over an hour, sometimes two hours, with straws in your nose to breathe through. So I was a little bit prepared uh, for that, but uh, I never felt any kind of uh, discomfort. I just knew I kind of went into Zen mode. You sit still, you, you're encased completely, except for like these two little uh, straws that you can breathe through through your nose. 
And remarkably, because I had wondered, am I going to be able to do this again in college? It hadn't been a problem, but a few years had gone by since then. And, uh, and it was fine. And I think that might have been why I got to do some other aliens down the road, because Michael Westmore was the makeup artist on that, that first one. And what a genius. Uh, what a brilliant man. And he complimented me. He said, boy, you're, you're good at this. <laughs> and all I was doing was sitting still. But uh, I kept thinking, maybe, maybe I'll get to do more of these. I, a little side note, when I went into the makeup uh, department, he had on his wall a whole series of what I found out were suggestions for various aliens that never got used. And I mean, creatures that your wildest imagination couldn't come up with. And they were just all along this wall. And he said, Oh yeah, those are things that uh, I made that they decided they didn't want. And he he kept, and I wish I had taken a photograph of that because it was remarkable, remarkable, but I was always comfortable with doing the makeup and, uh, Later on, I did some uh, start uh, one of the spinoffs where the makeup took over two hours. Yeah, uh, sitting still in the chair, and uh, and I just I go into a, a, a Zen mode. That's all I can say. It's important, and I want to forewarn any actors. Of course, the technology now is uh, is more advanced. The materials they use, you don't have to sit quite so long, but uh, make sure you are comfortable with that. I got one role, and I can't remember which show it was, because an actor had claustrophobia and freaked out with it, with it on. And I, I felt for him, of course, but uh, that's, it's important to just be patient, breathe slowly, and, and be patient. <laughs> do you remember exactly how long it took to do the Romulan makeup each day? The Romulan makeup, once they did the life casting, it took, it took over an hour. It's not too bad in Star Trek time. Maybe maybe closer to an hour and a half, actually, because the wig piece took some time. So I'd say an hour and a half minimum. And the first day, the first day was almost two hours, actually. Okay, that's that's not so bad. I mean, we talked to folks where it's like three, four, five hours. So two hours ain't bad. Later on, I did one that took uh, took that long. I will get to that one. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, and, and, you know, one other thing, too, about the Romulan outfit is uh, their wardrobe is just, uh, I don't even have the words to describe it. It's like giant shoulder pads, it's big, weird colors. I mean, do you yeah. remember anything about that outfit? And more importantly, if you do remember anything about it, was it at least comfortable to wear? Because it sure didn't look like it was comfortable to wear. I have to say, and I love the wardrobe department, it, it wasn't the most comfortable costume. <laughs> <laughs> After a couple of hours, I would find a place to lean against a wall and just kind of let my spine stretch out. I couldn't lie down, uh, but I would find various ways to accommodate the, uh, the wardrobe. Actually, that was uh, surprisingly because the makeup was quite involved, but it was the wardrobe got a little bit uncomfortable. Hats off to the wardrobe people, though. It looked great. <laughs> it definitely does. I just never want to wear that costume. So kudos <laughs> to you for surviving that. Yeah. And also, and I, I think it's okay to say this on the show, Going to the bathroom was a bit of an ordeal. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they'd say, look, can you wait? Can you wait? And I'd say, yes, okay, I can wait. I can wait. And then finally they'd unzip me and unattach me and I'd run to the bathroom and get reattached. <laughs> so, that, yeah, that was a little uncomfortable. 
And, you know, in this episode, you get to spend a lot of time with a lot of the key cast members, including Jonathan Frakes, Michael Dorn, Brent Spiner, LeVar Burton, Michelle Forbes. And, you know, this shoot in particular is interesting because you're running around with a whole lot of other Vulc- uh, whole other, I was going to say Vulcans, but a whole other bunch of Romulans. You know, there's a lot of other aliens on the set with you. And for that, too, it's also, I would imagine, a pretty chaotic set because you're on this Romulan bridge that's been destroyed and all banged up. Uh, it's very dark, very dimly lit. Uh, So, you know, I'd like to hear, I guess, first off, uh, if you remember anything about working with the cast and crew. And secondly, uh, what you can remember about the scenes you shot. I mean, was it as hectic as it appeared to be uh, from from my perspective? I'm glad it appeared to be that way because they were so organized. The the crew and, of course, the cast were the regulars. They were, you know, I was a little thrown because it was it looked a little chaotic. But then I just got into my groove and I had people guiding me and. The crew on that show, every episode I did was simply outstanding. They watched you. They kept, took care, good care of you. And so uh, I'm glad it did look as chaotic as it looked, but uh, it wasn't that way at all uh, on set. It was very well organized, very well organized. Good traffic, traffic (laughs) cops. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. I don't know if you're the kind of actor who likes to watch himself on TV when he's on there, but you know, this is Star Trek. This is kind of special, right? So did you actually watch your, your first time on Star Trek when it aired? I did. And I was nervous. I, I'm a little leery about watching myself, but I had to watch it because I wanted to see how the makeup looked and I was blown away. And then I thought, hey, that's good. <laughs> and uh, who was my Romulan cohort? Susanna Thompson, I believe it was. She was just terrific to work with, too. And uh, we called each other afterwards and said, hey, great job. Great job. Uh, so, yeah, that was fun. And I did watch each Star Trek afterwards and uh and most of the west wings too but sometimes i'd get a little shy and uh i'd have a friend tell me about it but because uh, as an actor you want to keep your reel up to date and you have to uh get all your most recent work on on a reel i uh i would end up eventually watching everything but sometimes not on the first airing so let's jump ahead a little bit now to your second appearance which would have been in season seven we're still in next generation here uh, and this time around, you played a train engineer, which is like a mind-boggling thing to say. It's like, here's a train engineer on Star Trek. Uh, on the so, holodeck. On the holodeck, yeah. And <laughs> I would imagine this would be a lot easier for you in makeup and wardrobe than being a Romulan, right? So much easier. Just the mustache. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that was my one human. Uh, well, in, in generations, I was a human, too. But uh, that was a trip. That was so trippy because I, I always was curious about it, the holodeck. And... Uh, and this is the one where the holodeck runs amok and they're trapped. And uh, I, I remember uh, it was Riker. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan Fra- uh, Frakes. Frakes? Frakes. Frakes yep. uh, terrific guy. Another terrific guy to work with. Uh, and uh, I just remember running, going up and down and making these announcements. And uh, then when he kills me, uh, I thought uh, I'm a, that's a spoiler alert. Sorry, but it wasn't. I wasn't really a human being. I was a holodeck configuration. Uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And uh, I, uh, gosh, I wish I could remember more of it. But the uh, the whole idea of it, I thought, was so trippy. That this uh, thing that they had relied on so faithfully suddenly runs amok, and uh, and uh, goes crazy on them. I think this is definitely like season seven's attempt uh, at camp, like we were talking about a little bit earlier. It's a little bit more like in the vein of the original Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. And yeah. 
see if I can refresh your memory a little bit, in fact, because, you know, one of the scenes that stands out is the fact that you do get to have a death scene in this. Uh, and that's because you are shot by a mafia hitman. So you got to be squibbed on a Star Trek show. And that doesn't really happen very often because usually it's just phasers and lasers and it's all done in post. But this time around, you actually get squibbed. So yeah. uh, I'd like to hear if, if you had done that before and if you remember anything about that experience. I did. I did do it once before in a low budget film. This was done much better. The low budget film uh, didn't work so well. You're lucky it wasn't a real gun on that film, probably. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the squib effect, uh, I think it was in the chest, lower stomach. I remember them taping it to me and being instructed to be very careful with it. And when uh, when he stabs me to lean into it to help it uh, burst out. And uh, I think it worked. Uh, I can't remember now. It's been so long. But uh, yeah, and wearing that for, a, well, I think, about two hours before we actually got to the moment was a little uncomfortable, but uh, <laughs> it worked. And uh, and I did one other. Oh, no, I didn't. I thought I did. No, that was the only one. And this episode also had an appearance by David Huddleston, who amazing actor. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us, but great resume, amazing work. Uh, you know, people have seen him. In, I think most people who have watched this show know him from The Big Lebowski, but he also did Blazing Saddles and so many other really great things. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you had a chance to chat with him at all, but did you spend any time with David Huddleston? We chatted a little bit and he, uh, I forgot that he passed. Oh my gosh. Uh, a terrific guy. And, uh, what a resume. Uh, yeah, we chatted a little bit, not, not very much, but a little bit. And, uh, yeah, great guy. I would imagine too, just, you know, as we wrap up this episode in particular, you know, this is, uh, I imagine a pretty quick role, right? So it seems like you're just there for one or two scenes. Was it like a full day for you or were you there for like an entire week for the whole production just to be safe? I think on that episode, I was there. Uh, for the whole day, and then they held me a day because I think everything I shot was shot in one day. But they held me a day just in case they needed to do some. So it was a, a two day, two day gig. All right, well that's perfect segue then I think for this as we come to your third Star Trek appearance because that is in Star Trek Generations. And uh, so I've actually talked to someone who was in that exact scene with you. I'm not going to say in the stories he told me just yet because I want to hear what you say first. Uh, but let's just start at the very top, and I want to, again, you know, focus on the outfits, because that's a big part of Trek stuff here. So uh, in Generations, you got to wear what's called the uh, Maroon Monster, I believe it is, outfit. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, that is a really cool outfit. That's like one of my favorite Star Trek outfits of all time. How did it feel to put that uniform on? I, I can't tell you. I wanted to take it home. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. I just felt, as soon as I put that on, that was my character. I was a communications officer. I put that on, and I was ready to do my gig. It's such a great costume. It's just so wonderful. I'm curious who it was that I worked with. So, well, you didn't work directly with him, but he was in the scene, and it was John Putch. And Putch did did oh. our show uh, quite some time ago, and he had a lot of stories about Generations. So I'm hoping today, again, I don't want to say anything, because I want to see if you corroborate those tales. Oh, okay. Um, but he, in particular, uh, it was some stories about William Shatner, because that really is the focus of this scene here. It's Alan Ruck and William Shatner, but Shatner is basically, you know, he's retired at this point, but he ends up taking control of the situation, and things happen. So... Uh, you know, I guess let's just start here. If you have any memories of Shatner and what happened and, and also how long was that shoot? Because I think from what I heard, it was supposed to be one length of time. It ended up being a completely different length of time. My my original gig was supposed to be uh, a week. And I ended up, I think it was uh, almost three weeks that I was on the set. I didn't get to interact with uh, William Shatner too much, but he came and sat with uh the other, uh, oh gosh, the woman, I can't remember her name. Walter Koenig and James Dewan were in that scene also. Yes, they came over and we would chat a little bit. And uh, 
I mean, these guys had been working together for so long. It was like hanging out with the, the gang. Uh, and, uh, well, he was just warm and, uh, and funny and could just be chatting away. And then they'd say, okay, let's go. And boom, boom, boom. He's ready to go. And total, total professional. Uh, my favorite memory of that was when, and I can't remember when it happens in the, in the movie, but the ship rocks. There's a, uh, I don't think we collide with anything. We hit something and, and they had these uh, uh, hydraulics underneath the whole sound stage. And the first time they did it, it was shocking. I, it was really, really a, a marvelous effect. And we're flopping all over the place. And uh, I, I think that's one of my favorite memories of, the, of just uh, being on this big movie. And, uh, but Shatner and, uh, and the rest of the crew, uh, everybody. I, my only sad thing was that uh, Leonard Nimoy wasn't on that, that one. I really wanted to meet him. But, uh, and then, uh, then, yeah, it turned out a lot of the shooting, uh, we would be in background, but they needed us. So it turned out to be what was one week turned out to be over two weeks. And that was cool. So I don't know if you are aware, but at that time, Shatner had just put out a book, and that book had a lot of not-so-nice things about a lot of his former castmates, and that included James Doohan and Walter Koenig. So what I was told oh. is that there was a little bit of tension on set, and that Walter and James, they you know they interacted when they had to, but uh, it seemed that Shatner was kind of oblivious to the fact that they were kind of mad at him, <laughs> and uh, they just kind of tried their best to stay away for the most part. Now, you know what I'm remembering? That's they didn't hang together as much. Uh, that's true. There wasn't any tension that I picked up on, but yes, that's true. Now I'm, I'm remembering when I was talking about the, the camaraderie, it was more Shatner and some other people. Uh, and uh, they were there and they chatted. Yes. I, I was not aware of the book at the time. I've heard about it since, but I didn't realize it came out at that time. Yeah. There was a little bit of that, a little bit. I can't say it was that I noticed major, but uh it wasn't as uh, warm and fuzzy as I, as I originally said. Shatner was very warm with the uh, certain other people, but uh, it wasn't cold, but it wasn't exactly palsy-wowsy. That's the best I can say about it. All right. Well, I'm going to see if I could jog your memory a little bit because I know it was a long time ago and, uh, you know, it was a long yeah. shoot also for you. But So there's one other scene where it happens where Shatner is hanging out by the captain's chair and he takes this, like, moment to kind of just, like, pet the captain's chair almost before he goes off to do something else. Do you remember I, anything about that? I remember, let's see, where was I? Because I wasn't in the scene. I remember being moved by it. I thought, yeah, that's right. He, he sort of strokes the chair a little bit, right? Yep. Yeah, you just jogged my memory. I, I was watching that. I didn't know if he had added that, if that was part of the uh, script. But it was quite, quite moving. And I guess it was him saying, bye-bye. Yeah, it's interesting because that's you know, in my interview with John Putch. Um, he, we did talk about that scene because I picked up on it, how it felt kind of odd or almost out of place. And apparently it was something that Shatner added. And uh, he, I guess he had to like maybe fight a little bit to get that added in there. So uh, just, a little, just a little interesting thing there. So, But for the most part, you're saying you didn't really see too much craziness with Shatner, not too much tension. Just him kind of doing his own thing. And Yeah, I, I have to say I didn't notice it. I, it may have been there, but I didn't notice it. But I am wrong in saying that they were real close, palsy wowsy. I was thinking of uh, Shatner and some other people that were there, but but I didn't feel any real tension. Uh, and uh, maybe uh, uh, I just wasn't looking or 
or I wasn't around when that happened. I, I don't remember that. Well, Thomas, let's jump over to Star Trek Voyager now, which is your uh, first appearance in that show. And that was in the second season episode, The Thaw, which, uh, you know, talk about camp, Thomas. Uh, this is an unusual and kind of unsettling episode, in my opinion, in a lot of ways. Oh, a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you play an alien named Viorza. Viorza? Uh, that is an interesting makeup also here. So, yeah, tell us about that makeup and hairpiece. The makeup took um, a good amount of time. I don't think it was as long as... Uh, Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, it, it was close to two hours. It was close to two hours. I love the character. He, he ends in not a very happy way. But the set was so uh, surreal. They had all the Cirque du Soleil people. Uh, well, not all of the Cirque du Soleil, but a bunch of Cirque du Soleil people doing that weird acrobatic thing. Yeah. Uh, and I asked uh, the AD, I said, is that are we aware of that? And he says, yes, you're aware of it. It's the uh, computer generated. They're sort of beings. They're watching you and, uh, and they're, they're controlling you. And, uh, but I got to talk with some of the Cirque du Soleil people and what a fascinating group of people they were and athletic. Oh my gosh. Uh, and uh, who, uh, who else was on that? Well, that particular episode also had uh, Michael McKean. He was the clown. Michael uh, McKean, yes, Carol that's Strykian. the Carol Stroykin. I, I never know how to say his name. Carol Stroykin. He was a, also a Trek regular. Uh, you had Patty Maloney as well. Uh, so yeah, lots of lots of interesting character actors in this one. A lot of them, and it was a strange episode, though, wasn't it? Yeah. It, I uh, when I read the script, I thought, "Wow, this is uh, this is different territory." But it, I think it worked. I think it uh, worked very well. And one thing I thought about this is interesting because about a month and a half ago. I was talking with my wife. We were watching people walk down the street on their cell phones. And we noticed how many people were just oblivious to traffic. And, and it came to mind the, uh, that episode, the computer taking over the planet and everybody's put in the core of the planet and controlled by this. And I thought, well, I, I hope we're not going in that direction. But uh, there was something a little prescient about it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting observation. Uh, yeah, this episode is really cool, too, because it has Michael McKean. I do want to just back it up to talk about him for a second, because I am a big fan of his work. I mean, ever since I saw Spinal Tap when I was a little itty-bitty boy, uh, you know, fell in love with all of his work and all the work that they do together. Uh, man, so, yeah, do, do you remember anything from Michael McKean? Did you have any chance to uh, chat I with had him a all? chance to chat with him a little bit and uh, told him what a fan I was, and he appreciated that. And uh, we just talked in general about – we talked a little bit about the the uh, script, but uh, just general conversation. and. Uh, he talked a little bit about uh, his enjoyment of uh, his co his comedy characters, which, gosh, how many has he done? Or I lost count. But uh, he uh, he's a warm uh, and uh, gregarious, gregarious guy. And uh, and he had a lot of fun with that character. I think he added a few things in there, too, which they uh, they let him do with some some dialogue and stuff like that, but Hey, he's Michael McKean. So <laughs> yeah. One of these days I got to find a way to get him on this show. Cause man, the things I would ask that man. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, he, and he's a good storyteller. He talked a lot about different, uh, different things uh, when he worked on uh, those different movies he had done and some inside jokes that, that uh, and uh, his appreciation of rock music. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, too. Uh, your character doesn't exactly make it out of this episode in one piece. Let's put it that way. Uh, and no. 
And I got to say, that is a, a pretty disturbing death scene. Yeah, like, what do you think it? about that? That was, that was really chaotic and just like, yikes. Yeah, I, I was a little surprised when I read it. And then I thought, okay. And it, it wasn't, f- I, I, I mean, it really I- It takes a turn for the dark there in that scene. It goes very dark, very dark. And uh, I think, uh, I, I, yeah, I was disturbed by it. <laughs> but, uh, but it was the story. And uh, uh, yeah, one of the darker episodes that I've done. And to end that way. Oh, yeah, yeah, and that that whole it's episode. It's a claim to Yeah, <laughs> that whole episode is such a bizarre one. So I, I would like to ask you more things about it, but I think I'm ready to move on because I want to be able to sleep tonight. So uh, let's talk about one of the, I think, one of my favorite dramatic roles you did in Trek, which would be over in DS9, and that would be your two appearances as Kira and Reese's father, Kira Tabin. And yeah. uh, those two episodes were uh, first you appeared in Ties of Blood and Water, and then again we saw you in Wrongs, Darker Than Death of Night. Both yeah. times you're a Bajoran. Uh, but also from different time periods. First time we yeah. see you, you are, I guess, let's say contemporary version. And then the second time we see a younger version of this character. So yeah. uh, let's just talk about a little bit about the Bajoran makeup and also, um, I guess, what they did to de-age you for that second one. They did uh, uh, a lot of, uh, what's the term when they in-paint? The makeup was actually surprisingly uh, pretty quick compared to to, to the other ones. The aging was more just in filling in with, uh, there's a term of makeup term, but uh, creating lines on the face. And, uh, and of course, I think in that episode, I'm on the, I'm dying. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was covered up quite a bit, but uh, the, uh, it was basically the same makeup and then a lot of in painting in different areas to just add the aging and that took a little more time than the original, uh, than the first makeup. Uh, uh, <clears throat> in painting uh, it can be uh, quite extensively because uh, uh, the, the detail work has to be so precise and they go through each line of the face. And uh, uh, But uh, yeah, that took a, a considerably longer than the uh, other episode. And how did you enjoy working with Nana Visitor? You know, we had her on the show a while ago and she I was amazing. Saw, she's such a dear. Yeah. She was a wonderful to work with and of course i how many seasons that was season that was full seven seasons yeah uh again warm welcoming and uh, a sheer delight to be around and to work with and very proud to say i was her father <laughs> and these are some very dramatic moments that you share i mean these aren't necessarily you know long scenes or in the entire episode but the scenes you have i mean there is a lot of drama a lot of intensity yeah. to what you're doing there i mean First off, it is your death scene, which is one thing we could definitely talk about. We can go into detail about if you want about how you did that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, then we see you again later on a younger version of this character meeting his daughter that he doesn't even know is her daughter, is his daughter, uh, yeah. and just dealing with what's going on in this, in this settlement, essentially. So it's, it's a lot happening in this character for the very short time that we see him. Yeah. Yes. A lot. The death scene was, uh, I don't want to say, no, not difficult. It would, no, not difficult. It wasn't difficult. I mean, it is a complex scene, though, because you know, we really don't actually see your character die on screen. It's basically, no. yeah, we see the drama leading up to before that happens. Yes. And he I wanted to convey the love for for his daughter at the same time that gradually uh, uh, eroding of my energy. And and so it was a, a little challenging in that sense, because I wanted the life of, of the love energy to come through. And uh, and then. Uh, and then just the the letting go. That's that's. I think that's what uh, did Avery Brooks direct that episode? 
But he said, he leaned into me uh, when we did, uh, I think, a second take, and he said, just let go, just let go. Keep, the, keep, keep it in your eyes and let everything else go. And I remember him whispering that in my ear, and I, I think I achieved that. Yeah, and you, you are correct. It is Avery Brooks. I don't know how I missed that note. So thank you for catching me up on that. Yeah, I, it just came to my mind because I remember he was on the show and uh, he he was a terrific director too. I mean, what a talented guy. Yeah, and I'm glad that you also mentioned what he told you because you know one of the things I noted in both of your DS9 roles as his character was like I really felt the character and I think it really came through through your eyes. Like you you have some very expressive eyes and that was what really I think helped show who the character is. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't know if you feel the same way about me, if you, if you did a lot of eye acting for this character, but I'd love to hear if you can tell me a bit about how you would use your eyes through your Star Trek roles in general, just in acting as a whole. Well, I, I've never thought about it too much in my acting as a whole, except to remember that on camera, you can convey a lot and based, with your eyes, of course. But in alien makeup, uh, I realized how important it was because so much of your face can't move sometimes. So everything really, uh, so I just would just channel all of my energy into my vision, into, into the, into the looking and uh, creating well with, with, uh, with my daughter uh, in, with Kira, it was so easy to, to, f- to see the love or to see her and feel love. So I, I would just let go of everything else and just put everything into my focus without, without thinking too hard about it. Because uh, uh, if you, uh, if you just open yourself up, a lot of stuff comes through your eyes anyway. Uh, So, uh, but uh, the uh, the technique I never thought of the technique of uh, of eye acting, but uh, but it is important for on camera, and uh, I think it's just focusing. Uh, I'm looking at you, and there's a camera over here. There's all this stuff going on, but it's just you and me together, and and that's the world, and I th- I guess that's where where the eyes become so important. <laughs> You know, I'm a little bit biased here because DS9 is my favorite of the Star Trek series. Uh, but it I personally is. feel like, you know, DS9 especially, you've really got to flex your acting muscles. And, you know, we haven't jumped into Enterprise yet, which we're about to do. But, you know, because one of your Enterprise roles is a very big one. But, uh, you know, I feel like especially here in these two DS9 episodes, like we really see what you're capable of doing in a way we didn't get to see in any of the previous Trek roles before. Do you, do you feel oh. the same way? You know, I, I do in a way, yes, because of the, the dramatic quality of it. Yes. I loved everything I ever did on any of the Star Treks. But uh, yes, I agree with you. I agree with you. That, that uh, I'm starting to be moved by that final scene. <laughs> Very good scene. Yes, yes, it was. And I think that uh, working with her, and that's the other thing. If you're focused on your partner, they can pull things out of you. And she has... She had that quality of just bringing me out of myself, bringing me to her. She's a marvelous talent. Yeah, and I think it's very much okay to be moved by that scene because DS9 is a show that'll mess you up, emotionally speaking. Yes. Yeah, that is a heavy one. Every episode of that show, practically, is just a real heavy hitter in terms of emotions. And uh, yeah, that that scene is like, it is really a heart-wrenching scene that you do, your death scene, because again, it happens off screen. Kira's not there for it. 
and neither are we the audience. So it really hits us in a way that almost feels, you know, very real. Because not often do does a child, let's say, get to be there for the death of their parents. That's a very real kind of thing to feel. That's true. That's true. And that was interesting that they did it that way. I I, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's move on to slightly happier times, shall we? Because the yeah, idea is going to make us cry if we keep talking about it. But yes, let's talk about I, I, I was getting so moved. I remember <laughs> seeing her face looking at me and I, uh, yeah, let's move on. <laughs> well, I will admit to you, Thomas, I, I did cry at that scene. And the very end of the episode too, same thing. So I, I definitely yeah. feel you did excellent work there, uh, you know, coming from a Trekkie and someone who just appreciates great acting. I and mean, that's a fine moment uh, on DS9 history. Thank you uh, so but, much. Yeah, happier times. Enterprise. Uh, you were Enterprise. a part of the very first episode of Enterprise, and you are a Vulcan. So you are Toss, I believe his name was. Or... Yeah. And when I went to L.A., I said, I want to be on Star Trek Next Generation, and can I be a Vulcan? I got to do a lot of things, and so I sort of let it go. And then lo and behold, I get to be Toss on uh, on Enterprise, which I thought was a good series, too. Uh, uh, and that episode, I didn't get to be such a uh, such a nice Vulcan, but uh, but it was a lot of fun. And the makeup on that, I, I loved how I looked, <laughs> and the robes, yeah, those nice. robes were amazing. Very nice wardrobe. And we didn't really talk about this, I guess, uh, too in depth when we talked about the Romulan. But let's talk about the ears a little bit. So, what is the prosthetic process like for the ears? And more importantly, for you as someone who grew up loving Star Trek, what was it like for you to put on those ears for the first time, and especially to be a Vulcan now? Well. I was sitting in the makeup chair and it took longer than I thought it would take because they're quite substantial. And uh, they were just finishing me up and they needed to take a break for something. So I decided to turn and look in the mirror and I just went, whoa, I'm a Vulcan. <laughs> I was so thrilled. And uh, yeah, but it's a lot. Uh, it was involved process, but. Uh, but uh, it was uh, great makeup artists, always the top flight people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought the look was just fabulous. And I, I really loved that, 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 uh, that look. I finally got to be a Vulcan. Yes. <laughs> you know, going back for a second to talk about how you described the Romulans earlier, you said that they, they lack empathy. But <clears throat> in the case of a Vulcan, you know, they are kind of in control of their emotions. They don't really have much but you are a Vulcan who's also a little bit, as you said, you know, antagonistic. So yeah. how did you manage to play that? Was that a challenge to do that kind of a role? Well, I was a little disappointed because I wanted to be a more empathetic uh, Vulcan, <laughs> but uh, I thought of Mirak. I thought, okay, well, we're cousins. We're okay. Uh, I'm not quite as cold, but uh, I'm, I thought of arrogance. I'm, I'm superior to you. I used that more than uh, than not being completely empathetic, but just that uh, I know more than you. I'm superior, and uh, a, a certain arrogance, like uh, some of these British uh, royalty dramas. In fact, I thought of that uh, when I was doing it. I thought, yes, what if I was the king of so and so, and and I used that a little bit in uh, in playing that, that character. So you are someone who at this point has walked on the sets of TNG, of DS9, of Voyager. Here you are on the pilot of Enterprise, and it is a very different show. I mean, I don't know if you got to see the entire script or what they gave you access to for that pilot, but, you know, it's a very different show. It's set in much more almost, you know, not contemporary times, but much closer to contemporary times. So how did you feel about the material, and did you think that this very different kind of Star Trek show would be a success? 
I did think it would be because I thought, oh, this is taking a slightly different road. I ended up being wrong. But uh, the uh, yes, it did. Uh, it did take a different tact. And I guess that's that hurt the show for many of the fans. But uh, I thought the actors, again, were terrific. And I, I didn't get to see the whole script. I got to see the episode when it was done. And I thought it worked pretty well. Uh, it was the premiere episode. So I thought, well, they'll they'll improve as they go along. How many seasons did it do? Just one or two? It made it to four. And I, I would really say oh, by, the, by the time they hit four, I mean, they really did hit their stride. It's just at that point, it was unfortunately a little too late. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, I didn't realize it was four. Yes, four seasons. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yes, that first episode did have those that kind of different turn. But uh, I thought it was intriguing. And uh, for me, it worked. For me, it, I thought it worked. All right. Well, your final role in Star Trek Enterprise and final role in Star Trek, as of now, at least, uh, was in season yeah. three and uh, in the episode Harbinger, where you are, character doesn't have a name, but he's just credited as a sphere builder test subject. And you know, yes. I, I've asked you to say a lot about makeup because you've done so many characters on Trek covered in makeup. But this guy, woof. This guy. This guy, and I always called him the cracked man. I like that. Uh, I got on the set the first day. I think I was called at 4.30 to be in the makeup chair. And I didn't leave until about a quarter to late. To late. So it was a long process. Again, the in-painting and, uh, and getting out of the makeup took almost three hours as well because they had to preserve everything for the next day's shoot. But once I was in it, and the things I got to do were just fabulous. I loved it. I, I have to say, playing aliens is is pretty cool. <laughs> but uh, it uh, it was a very involved makeup process. Yeah, fortunately, the costume was a little easier to deal with when I had to use the bathroom or whatever. But uh, but the uh, the makeup itself, and I had to be extremely careful during meal breaks. You have to be so careful, but uh, uh, I was transported. I just loved it. And I love that whole scene when they find me in the pod and bring me into the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the medicals place. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I just thought it was terrific. And Scott Bakula, I thought made a great captain. Scott, he, Scott Bakula is a very underrated Star Trek captain. And, yes. Uh, yeah. Scott actually asked, in fact, you know, how did you like working with him? Because, you know, we did see you with him in, in Broken Bow, but only for, you know, a little brief time. But this time around, you can spend time. a lot more quality time with him. I think you have a little bit of a fight scene with him, too, right? I do have a little bit of a confrontation. And uh, what was fun was that he said uh, when I was lying on the table and they come and first look at me before they uh, called action, he said, I know you from somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> he was referring to uh, the <laughs> the uh, emer- emergence or not emergence uh, the uh, broken bow, <laughs> but uh, he uh, uh, was uh, terrific to work with. And uh, again, I have no no real complaints about any of the actors I worked with on any of those shows. I thought the casting was brilliant, and uh, if I had been a regular on one of the shows, maybe I'd have one thing to say about something, but uh, everybody was just wonderful to be with and work with. And uh, the physical work, I love that I, on Harbinger that I could walk through walls. Yeah. 
And uh, that that was a hoot. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> and, was that like uh, a separate day for you somewhere with a green screen? Or how do they do that? Was that still on the same set and they would just do combusting that I'd way? I'd walk up to the wall. They'd freeze me and then take photos and make sure I had everything accurate. And then they'd go to the other side and set up cameras, set up everything. And then I'd just step through like I had just walked through. And then I guess green screen to see the uh, the melting into the uh, into the into the wall. All right. And someone once asked me, they said, well, how come you didn't fall through the floor? <laughs> and I, I asked the makeup artist, I said, yeah, that, that's a good question. He said, well, you tell them because you didn't want to. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty fair point. Yeah, I'm not going to argue that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I fell through the floor, I'd be floating through space. What, what point would that be then? Yeah, no, that's, yes. that's a good answer. <laughs> So, you know, throughout your Star Trek history, you played a lot of different aliens. So, you know, who would you say would have been your favorite alien character that you played? Well, the favorite for tender-hearted reasons would have been uh, uh, on Deep Space Nine. But uh, I guess because it was my first one, Mirok. Uh, I loved all the characters. I, I loved each one. And uh, Harbinger, because the makeup was so intense and uh, all-consuming, I have great effect. But Mirak was my first gig. I was thrilled to get on, to walk on that set and see all these things I'd just been seeing uh, on the TV screen. Uh, that'll, that'll stay with me forever. Well, that's as far as favorite alien, but what about favorite role itself? Because, I mean, you've had a myriad of lengths on these different shows. I mean, one episode you're there as a train conductor and you're shot and you're done. Others you're there for the whole episode, like in Enterprise or even Voyager. So uh, what would you say was your favorite role to actually perform? My favorite role? Hmm. Well, I put Mirak up there, Virosa, uh, gosh, Harbinger. Yeah, I guess I would say Deep Space Nine. Okay. I mean, I loved them all for different reasons. But again, because there was something uh, heartfelt about that part and uh, that scene, I, w- I would say on this level, all of them, and then just above it, Deep Space Nine. <laughs> DS9 is like that really good oatmeal that just sticks with you forever. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Weird analogy, but it's the truth. DS9 just never goes away, those feelings. <laughs> That's true. Yes. (laughs) So Thomas, you know, that's our Star Trek talk. But before we leave here today, I want to jump back into modern times for a second. Uh, Can we talk about the catheter cowboy? Because for those that don't know, that is a series of skits you did with John Oliver on last week tonight that really took off so much. So it was basically a parody of things that Trump would want to watch on TV in order to be educated about social and political matters. And uh, what's really cool, too, is for folks again who don't know, John Oliver actually bought airtime in DC to run those things as ads, uh, which is crazy. So yeah. Tell me about being the Catherine Kelby. That is fun. That is so fun to watch those skits. Yeah. The way I got that part, I didn't audition. I got a call from my manager. She said, uh, the John Oliver show would like you to come on and do, uh, uh, a infomercial. And, uh, as the Catherine cowboy. Now, apparently there had been some commercials, uh, where there was a guy who was the catheter cowboy doing commercials for catheters for people. I didn't know any of this. And I thought infomercial, I knew who John Oliver was. I, I knew about the show, but I, I just thought it sounded strange. And so I said, well, let me think about it. 
And my wife said, are you nuts? <laughs> this sounds terrific. And I said, well, I don't know what this means. So I said, okay. And then I went and lo and behold, it's this wonderfully crazy comedic uh, thing that I ended up doing oh, five or six of them, I think. But at first I wasn't going to do it. I was sort of, I had no idea what they were talking about. And I thought, uh, I don't know, but I'm glad I didn't say no. <laughs> I mean, you were like the perfect person for this part. I mean, especially just, you know, to go from the West Wing to this, it's almost, you know, it's like a lateral movement if you want to think about it that way. Yes, it is. That's true. That's true. Uh, and I, and I didn't mind uh, poking our former president and uh, uh, yeah, I feel very good about doing it. And each time I had no idea what I was going to be saying, I'd get the script literally the day of and uh, because uh, they kept everything kind of hush hush. And I'd get calls out of the blue saying, hey, can you show up on Saturday to do? And I'd say, sure. So uh, it, it was uh, a lot of fun. And it was uh, uh, I think uh, I'm, I'm very proud of it. <laughs> The Catholic Cowboy is very much a great example of the fact that it is really the straight man that the comedy comes out of. Yes. You know, everybody talks about, you know, Abbott and Costello, and they always will point to, you know, uh, one character being more funny than the other. But really, it's all about the reaction, about playing it straight, because sometimes playing it straight is where the humor actually comes from. And this is like the perfect example of that. And you were so amazing at doing that in this role. Yes. And I'm glad you pointed that out because they uh, said that to me right away. And I, I, I picked up on it right away. And, and uh, I watched the first one and I, and I thought, oh, this is, this is the perfect approach. This is the absolute perfect approach to do this. And uh, yeah, being the, the straight person in a comedy can be, uh, can, can be quite fun, quite fun. All right, well, Thomas, let's just lighten around these last few questions I got for you here. And uh, let's start with best gig you ever had and worst gig you ever had. Well, I can't name directors. Uh, and I want to be careful about that, but, uh, let's make sure you can keep working. That's the most important thing. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't have a lot of fun on Armageddon. I'll just leave it at that, (laughs) but I didn't ask. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, well, the best gig I'd have to say would be a few of them. First of all, uh, West wing, uh, in theater, uh, Public theater, I did uh, Shakespeare in the Park, uh, Coriolanus. I didn't play Coriolanus, I, but I was in a, an outstanding production, Coal Country. And uh, the, uh, the Star Treks, every single one of them are, are dear to my heart. And the, uh, the, uh, one of the Law and Orders I did, which is going back a ways, I, I really like that. And I did an episode of Strong Medicine. It wasn't a nice character at all, but uh, I I really liked the uh, the writing of that character. And uh, he, he's a bad guy, but I I, I liked I liked the character. I liked playing that part. Most valuable thing someone has ever told you about life or acting that you still think about today? Oh gosh, uh, be open. Be malleable. Remember, you're giving a gift. It isn't about you. It's about, and the person telling me this went like this, reaching out. And that's helped me sometimes because uh, sometimes the nerves can get to me and I, I think, wait a minute, I'm not doing this for me. 
This isn't for me. This is for those people out there. And that that's helped me a lot. And being malleable, because you just don't know what's going to come your way. I mean, the Star Treks, uh, even though they were they were aliens, they were so different. And you have to just be open and loose and just be open, be open. Great answer. And last thing for today, Thomas, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? I'm part of a family. <laughs> the Star Trek universe, I wish, given the hard times we're in right now, I wish that we more political leaders would absorb the, the idea of uh, being part of the community of planet earth that we're all we're all neighbors we all share we all need air water food these are common things that all of us need we need our planet and uh i always felt that that was part of the uh the theme of star trek that the uh the earthlings were represented earth and uh i think uh I wish that message would get out more. All right. Well, great answer. And great answer throughout this whole interview with Thomas. I mean, it's been a real pleasure to chat with you and, and really learn about your craft because you are a master and your explanations for things are so spot on. And just like, you know, a lot of folks will treat acting as this almost pretentious kind of thing. But one of the great things about this show in particular is we get so much access to the inner workings of the mind like yours, and you really break it down in such wonderful ways. So uh, thank you for sharing your stories, sharing your insight, and uh, especially for being a Star Trek fan and just enjoying that experience so much. Uh, I always love talking to folks who really, really genuinely enjoy that. And uh, yeah, this has been a real treat for me. Well, it's been a real treat for me too, Matthew. And I hope I did the uh, the thing the way you wanted it. Uh... The, uh, oh, the intro is all good. Yeah, everybody's already listened to it now because it's already been 90 minutes ago and they've been loving every minute oh, of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's right. I forgot. That's right. Well, it's a pleasure to work with you, buddy, and all the best on this marvelous show you're doing. And uh, uh, yeah, just bless you. Well, thank you. And since you are a Vulcan, we got to do this because uh, you got to do this as well. So live long and prosper, Thomas. Live long and prosper, brother. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, all one word. If you'd like to directly support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold, which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat. Or pick up some merchandise from our store, or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast, too. If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the RageWorks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.